I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, brothers and sisters. Now, in, in chapter 3, we learn that we are made ministers to the glory of God, that we're, we're all made ministers to the glory of God. Each one of us has a part in the gospel ministry. It's not the same part. We all have parts, but each one of us has a part in the gospel ministry. And it's a part that is designed to put God on display. It's a part that's designed to reveal His glory in His Son. Now, we saw this work at Stories in the Park and Love to be Me. So, we, we, know, we know that this can be effective. We know that when we work together, the gospel can go forward in a, in, in a powerful way. We're going to get chances to do this again as we move out beyond the walls of the church, as we, we take this teaching that we get on Sunday morning into the community and are able to say to them, here's what Jesus Christ looked like. Follow me as I follow Jesus Christ, as Paul would put it. So in chapters 4, 1 through 6, Paul goes a little bit deeper, and he uses himself as an example to kind of refine his terms here. And he proposes a truth about the gospel ministry, about his ministry, and as such, about our gospel ministry as well. Here's the truth he proposes. Our ministry is one of light. Our ministry is one of light. Now, let, let me get just technical for you for just a second. This, this is what is known as the proposition of our sermon. This is the theme of this passage. It's, it's not something that we make up. It's not something to derive. It's after Scott does the same type of prep that I do. The special speakers you have coming up in August, September, and October, while Kelly and I are on sabbatical, are doing the same type of prep. This proposition rises up out of the passage. So you might call it the central theme of this short passage. Now, Paul is going to show us what this means by revealing the nature of his ministry in three steps. These three steps are the structure of our passage. Every week I stand before you, I give you a proposition, and I give you two or three or four points that support that proposition. They're designed to bring clarity to the theme of the passage, clarity to the proposition. So, they're there to help us more fully understand the proposition. Now, here's our steps. Step number one. Paul commends himself to the conscience of others. That's in verses 1 and 2. Step number 2, Paul characterizes the spiritual condition of the lost. That's verses 3 and 4. And step number 3 in, in, in Paul's 
explanation of his ministry is Paul conveys the nature of his ministry. He gets precise here in verses 5 and 6. Now, there are valuable life lessons in each step, uh, and there are valuable life lessons in the proposition as well. So today's sermon is called The Light. This is part 6 of our series, I Am Content. We'll do part 7 next week, and we'll finish up chapter 4 next week. So let's take a look at our first step and Paul, what Paul has to say about his ministry in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, the ministry that Paul's talking about here is the ministry that he explained back in chapter 3, verse 8. It's a ministry of transformation. It's a ministry that has changed Paul. It's a ministry that, that changes people by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one that changes believers from dead people into the image of God, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 18. Paul says that he has this ministry by the mercy of God. Now, now, notice he doesn't feel that he received it because he was an excellent theologian. He was an excellent theologian. He didn't receive it because he was a great preacher. He was a great preacher. He didn't get it because he was a great anything. He didn't get it because he was good at something he did. It came to him as an act of mercy. Now, I think it's significant that Paul doesn't use the word grace here. He uses the word mercy. He sees his ministry as a gift of mercy, not grace. Well, what's the difference? We already know what grace is. We define that back in chapter 2. The definition of grace is favor that flows from God solely because of who he is and without regard for the worth or merit of the one to whom it flows. That's grace. Now, mercy is a completely different word. Grace is a Greek word, charis. Uh, mercy is the Greek word eleo, and it means in, in this context to show compassion. To show compassion as opposed to being hardened. Now earlier in chapter 3, Paul spoke of those minds who had been hardened. Paul knew he could well have been one of those people. His mind may have been hardened. Yet God saw fit to give Paul a gift. And God had mercy. Paul had earned rebuke. He was rebellious against God. He had earned judgment, but instead he received mercy. Instead of rebuke, he received a ministry. Now, this was an encouragement to Paul. He had received favor instead of condemnation. But it wasn't because of who Paul was. It wasn't because of what Paul could do. Paul is setting the stage for his readers here. He wants them and, 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 and by extension, he wants us to see that we should be encouraged by the love of God that we receive. We should be encouraged by the, the grace that we set, and the grace that, that God has given us is a gift of mercy. See, that's how the, that's how the two words work together. There's subtleties in the different meanings, but we receive grace because God is merciful. And that the realization of that should, the realization that we should have received condemnation, but instead have received mercy, that should spur us on. That should spur us on to live 
more godly, more holy lives, to, to strive for, for that righteousness that, that we have in Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't deserve what he's received. And he wants us to be aware of it so that you and I can understand that we don't re- deserve what we've received either. We haven't earned this stuff. If we deserved it, it would simply be our due. If we deserved it, we could stand in front of God and say, well, I did what I was supposed to do. Now, you do what you're supposed to do. Since we don't deserve it, since it came as an act of mercy, we should have a greater appreciation of what God has done for us. Now, because Paul gets this, look what begins to flow from him. And this shows up in verse 2. Because Paul deeply appreciates what God has done for him, the gifts that God has given him, he has renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. Now, it doesn't take much reading in between the lines to see what Paul's saying here. And we have to realize this for what it is because we have a tendency to look at Paul as the ultimate theologian, the, the, the ultimate Christian, the, the guy that was instrumental in starting the church, the guy that was instrumental in writing the New Testament. But evidently, Paul himself was guilty of disgraceful and underhanded ways, just like most of us are. In Romans 6.21, Paul says that these are shameful acts. And so if you put these two verses together, you realize that Paul's ashamed of the things that he's done before he got saved. Says, and, and, and he says that he's been set free. And so what we should hear from that is that we've been set free as well. It doesn't mean that we won't do those things. You know what? Sometimes we're going to slip. Sometimes we're going to do the wrong things. But it doesn't mean that we won't do those things, but it means that we don't have to do them. We don't have to do those disgraceful and underhanded things. We can resolve not to with the help of the Holy Spirit in us. We can refuse to practice them. Well, how do we do that? I have to be honest with you. Before I got saved, I did some pretty shameful things. I look back on them and I hang my head in shame. I can't believe I used to do those things. I've got to confess as well that they didn't go away right when I got saved. I, you know, I was transformed and being transformed, but, you know, I'm still being transformed. I wasn't perfected then. I'm not perfected now. But as I began to grow in the Lord, I began to, to repent from those things that hindered my relationship with the Lord. But by then, I'd been practicing those things for 33 years, and they had become compulsions. I thought I had to do them. I thought I had no choice. I couldn't stop myself. They were things I thought I had to do. And it wasn't until I, I began studying the Word a little closer, I'd, I began listening to people who were older than I that had been down the path before, and, and began, and they were encouraging me to understand the full counsel of God, they were encouraging me to trust the Holy Spirit in me, not my own uh, capabilities. I've got to tell you something. Uh, you know, I had tried everything. I, I, I tried mind control. I, I, I had tried uh, wearing patches and, and taking supplements and all things to get off of some of the bad habits that I had, and, and none of it worked. And it wasn't until somebody far wiser than me told me that I need to trust in the Holy Spirit in me, that I need to trust in Christ in me, not in my own capabilities. 
And as I began to do that, I began to realize I don't have to do these things anymore. I, I can turn away from them. I was set free, not by my own determination, but by Christ in me. See, that's what Paul is trying to teach us here, that if we rely on Christ in us, he's trying to teach the Corinthians the same thing. If they rely on Christ in them, they can get through this hard time that they're going through. If you can rely on Christ in you, you can renounce those shameful and underhanded things. You don't have to practice them. Another thing that Paul refuses to do is to tamper with the Word of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, Number one, it means he's going to preach it in its entirety. He's going to preach the full counsel of God. Number two, he's going to avoid using the Word of God to get his way. He's going to avoid bending the Word of God to his will and his desire. He's going to look at it objectively and try to apply it to his life as best he can. Paul will preach the, the, and, and, and he will preach and live the full counsel of God. And in doing this, he will, what he says, commend himself. He will entrust himself to the conscience of those he preaches to. In other words, they should be able to trust him based on what he says and how he lives. Not just on what he says, but on what he says and how he lives. His life is going to be a demonstration of the word of God. And what he's trying to say here is that his holy living and his faithful teaching of the Word of God allow him to live in such a way as to be blameless before other men. His conscience is clear. Paul rests easy in what he's called to do. He rests easy in the Word of God. Paul is trusting in Christ in him. And he's trusting in Christ to him to be his most powerful testimony. His most formidable defense against his critics. So as Paul commends himself to the conscience of others, we see that his ministry is based on this accurate proclamation of the word of God and a manner of living that puts that word of God into play, that puts that word of God into practice in how he lives. Paul is not just a hearer of the word. We would hear James say it later. Paul is a doer of the word. He calls us to do the same thing. So in his first step, Paul establishes a sense of integrity. He establishes a clear conscience before other men. And what does that mean? Well, that means Paul never has to worry about what he's doing. He never has to worry that somebody's going to walk by his house and see something happening in that house that is ungodly or hear an ungodly word from his mouth. Paul never has to worry about something he said to somebody. He never has to justify himself because he's speaking truth and he's doing the best he can to live that truth. Why? Why is he able to do that? Well, Paul places a high value on the Word of God. He tries to live that Word as best he can. Well, what does that mean? What does it look like? You can see it right here in his letter. Paul's under fire. The church he started has kind of turned against him. There are teachers in the church that are criticizing him and accusing him of terrible things. And he never once rails on his accusers. Did you see that? He never really directly fires at him. He, he never defends himself. He's not indignant about the things that are being said about him. He's not, he's not allowing his anger to get control of him and cause things to, to inflame even further. He's not angry. As a matter of fact, 
Paul is what? I mean, the name of our series. Paul is content. He's content. And, you know, we hear this twice out of Paul, once in this book, uh, and, and again, uh, later on, we hear that Paul is content in all circumstances. Paul is content. Christ is his only defense. And the Bible, the Bible is his only guideline. I've got to tell you something. It's easy. It's easy to fall victim to the urge to defend ourselves, isn't it? Somebody says something we don't like or says something that hurts us or makes some accusation, and the first thing we want to do is we want to stand up and defend ourselves. It's easy to believe that we have to defend Christ. It's easy to believe that we have to defend the church. The church is under fire in our culture. The church universal is under fire in our culture. It's easy to think that we've got to defend the church, that Christ needs our help, that He needs our protection. I've read it before. You've probably seen articles as well. The church is going to be gone in 50 years. If we don't do something, the church is just going to evaporate. People, young people are leaving by the thousands, and they're looking for something else. We've got to do something, or else the church is not going to exist. And, and so we get on these programs. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to adapt that. We're going to change this way we're doing things so that we can bring these people in so that the church will continue to exist in 50 years. You know what? That's just foolishness. And I'll tell you why. Have you read Revelation? The church is there. (laughs) It's not going away. It's not threatened with extinction. It might not look as big as it does when when Christ comes back because we're going to find out who the true believers are as the church falls under persecution. Okay? But the church isn't going anywhere. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. It's His bride. It's His bride. Do you think the Father is going to allow the bride to fade off into oblivion? Not going to happen. We have that guarantee. Church doesn't need our help. What the church needs is people who are sold out to the gospel. The gospel is the solution to this. It's not, it's not these activities. It's not the, these ways that we're going to change things. It's not the, the things that we're going to do. It's the gospel. The gospel goes out. People get saved. Where do they end up? The church. Jesus Christ has the words of life. Amen? Okay? So... We need people that are sold out to the gospel. We need people that are down in the park. We need people that are out in the town sharing the gospel. We don't have to defend Christ. We don't have to defend ourselves. All we have to do is rely on Christ in us and use His Word to guide us. If we're relying on Christ in Him, in us, if we're using His Word to guide us, then we're going to live and and breathe the gospel. So that's step number one. Let's take a look at step number two, verses three and four where Paul characterizes the the spiritual condition of the lost. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, these verses look a little tricky, but they are understandable. Paul just said his conscience is clear. He stands blameless before other men. Now he, now, now he turns to this concept of the veil. And the veil showed up in uh, chapter 3 where he described the veil Moses wore over his face and, and uh, how that prevented the people from gazing directly on the glory of God. Paul kind of established that imagery in chapter 3 so he could bring it back into this chapter 4. So he takes that, that material image of the veil and to, and to illustrate those who are dying in their sins. So they're unable to comprehend the gospel. And, 
And again, the parallel is obvious here. Paul wants his readers to see that the gospel is the glory of God. And just as Israel was unable to look directly upon the glory of God in Moses' face, those who are dying are unable to see the glory in the gospel. They're unable to understand the glory in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Now, why is that? Why are they unable to see it? I mean, if the gospel is truth, if it is spoken clearly, if it is presented, as Paul says in verse 2, in an untampered way, in other ways, if it's presented the way that God wrote it, why would those who are lost not see it? Well, the answer is there in the next verse. Paul says, the God of this world, this is Satan. And we know he's talking about Satan because John, in his gospel, in chapter 12, verse 31, says it, that Satan is the ruler of this world. Satan has blinded unbelievers. Paul goes on to say that he's blinded them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They can't see it. Now, Paul is choosing his words very carefully here. Keep in mind the context. He's still trying to encourage his readers to cast off this false teaching and the the wrath that his critics have brought into the church. Remember, the critics adopt uh, Paul's apostleship because he suffered so much. They're using that as an accusation. Their claim is that Paul's suffering proves that he's not an apostle. Track with me on this, okay? They would say something like, God blesses people. He doesn't cause people to suffer. What kind of God would cause people to suffer? What kind of God would allow suffering to happen? So Paul is still urging the Corinthians to trust Christ in them rather than to to embrace this gospel of fear and anger and, and distrust and doubt. And he says, those who are unbelievers have been blinded to the light of the gospel. Blinded to the light of the gospel, the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see what Paul did here. He brought up the light of the gospel. He, he made it a subject of discussion in the glory of Christ. What is the glory of Christ? The glory of Christ is in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Wasn't that what the glory of Christ is? Amen. The accusation against Paul is that his suffering proves he's not an apostle. Here in verse 4, Paul kind of counters that accusation with, does the suffering of Christ prove that he's not the Son of God? Now they've got something to think about, don't they? Paul never gives them the chance to ponder that too long. He says Christ is the image of God. And in saying that, what he's really saying is, is he's one with God. Of course he's his son. As a matter of fact, as the only righteous one ever to have existed, his suffering proves he's a son. Now, likewise, Paul's suffering proves that he's an apostle. Paul is preaching light. His accusers are preaching darkness. So Paul's taken that accusation and literally said, If you think my suffering is proof that I'm not an apostle, what do you make of the suffering of Jesus Christ? Now they've got to make some sense out of that. And what Paul's done here in in step two is he revealed the nature of his ministry. His ministry has to do with light. These accusers are preaching darkness. 
Paul's ministry is a ministry of light brought into a dark world. The light he brings is the light of the gospel. And the darkness he brings it to is the blindness of those who don't believe. So even as he establishes that as the nature of his ministry, he also achieves this stunning defeat of his critics. He just blasts them off the the stage. Paul's implication is that if his accusers don't see the glory of God in his suffering, they're not saved. They're not regenerated. Why are they not saved? Well, they've been blinded by the God of this world. We know that's Satan, but listen carefully. This is not a, the devil made me do this. This is not a way to unload the responsibility for, for confessing our sins on Satan. They've been blinded by what the world has to offer. That's why he uses this terminology, the God of this world. They've been blinded by their own desires. They've been blinded by their own ambitions. They've been blinded by their preconceptions of who God is. They've been blinded by their preconceptions of what the Word of God says. They've been blinded by their own sin. They've been blinded by their own allegiance with Satan. I don't think they signed a contract. I don't think they said, I'm going to go with Satan. But what they have done is, is they have aligned themselves with Satan by making themselves more important than God. To these people, it's not only Paul's suffering that doesn't make sense. It's the suffering of Christ as well. They're in the ministry for their own gain. And their hardened hearts prevent them from seeing the glory of God. All they really want to see is their own glory. All they really want to do is elevate themselves. Paul's ministry is to bring light into the spiritual condition of darkness. And that's step two. Let's move on to step three. Where Paul conveys uh, the full nature of his ministry in great detail. And he does this in verses five and six. Where points out the major difference between himself and his critics. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's ministry is characterized by pointing to the glory of another not to his own glory, by pointing to the one, Jesus Christ, who's the glory of God. Paul goes so far down this path as to call himself a servant of the church, a servant of the Corinthians. He wants them to know he's there to serve them. And that's exactly what ministry is. If we understand the nature of ministry, that it it is in serving, making people more important than ourselves, elevating others and diminishing ourselves, doing all we can to point people towards Jesus Christ. Now, keeping all this in the context of Paul's letter, there's a marked contrast. Paul's pointing out this contrast between those who oppose him, who are in it for personal gain. They are not servants of anybody other than themselves. Uh, they, They are apparently among the blind. And there's a contrast between that and Paul who sees. And Paul trusts that the Corinthians see this as well because Christ is in them. So you have these blind people that can't see the gospel. What, a, what is that? 
these people are blind. If all unbelievers are blind, how did I get saved? We need to think about this for a second. A blind man can't will himself to see. A blind man can't gather enough evidence to make a decision to see. A blind man can't see. And regardless of the reason that he can't see, he's blind. He can't see. How can a blind man see the gospel? How can a blind man see the truth? Well, Paul knows the answer to this firsthand. Pastor Pastor Ristow read the passage out of Acts a little bit earlier, out of Acts chapter 9. Paul is on the road to Damascus, and he has this incredible experience. Paul was absolutely Jewish to the core. He was sold out to Judaism. He was tracking down Christians. He was persecuting the church with every chance he get, and with the same passion that he now chases the word traveling all the way from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest these Christians and bring them back for torture, trial, and execution. And while he's on the road, we, we, we heard this in Acts chapter 9, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, we find out in the very next few verses that that light that shone around him is Jesus Christ. Paul gets saved in the encounter. But look at how he got saved. Paul was blind to the truth, and the light shone on Paul. Paul didn't uncover the light. He couldn't see it. Paul didn't seek the light. He couldn't find it because he's blind. The Old Testament tells us that there are none who seek God. Paul didn't make an informed decision. The light, listen, the light revealed itself to Paul. Did you hear that? The light revealed itself to Paul. How did Paul get saved? The light revealed itself to him. See, that's how blind people will see. God will reveal himself to them. And this is Paul's ministry. This is what he does. He preaches the gospel through which God reveals himself to his children. Paul serves the church by preaching the gospel. Take another look at verses 5 and 6. This is the essence of Paul's ministry. This is the very core of Paul's ministry. And it is to serve the church. And it's easy to miss this. Because that phrase of serving is sandwiched in between two very profound phrases, phrases that we're very familiar with. But Paul is challenging the Corinthians to point towards this this act of service. He's saying, are those guys serving you the way I am? Are, Are they called to humble themselves and make you more important than themselves? Isn't that what Jesus did when he went to the cross? Didn't he humble himself? Didn't he make us more important than himself? Are are those guys showing you how to do this? Are they teaching you about Christ and service? Or are they teaching you about themselves? Or worse yet, are they teaching you about you? I like to hear about me. I've told you before, I think I'm the center of the universe. I think when I die, all you people are going to go away. I'm wrong. (laughs) So Paul wants to know 
Are these people teaching about themselves? Are they teaching about you? Are they teaching about Jesus Christ? Because there's only one answer. There's only one right answer to that question. They should be teaching about Jesus Christ. Paul's passionate about this. Why? Why does Paul serve the church so vibrantly? Why is he so fired up about this? Why is he so passionate about the Word of God? Why is, is this guy who was so lofty and so famous, people would have looked at him when he was a young man and said he's got so much potential. Why is he willing to humble himself and serve others? What has happened to Paul to change him so radically? It's all there in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. This is the light of the glory of God that he's talking about. A light that shone before the sun, the moon, and the stars were ever formed. The glory of God. It's a light that will light the new Jerusalem when there is no sun and moon and stars. A new creation, there won't be any need for them because the new Jerusalem will be lit by the, the radiance of the glory of God. It's a light that has the power to save. A light that God shines on men. And again, notice, the light isn't uncovered by any effort of man. It doesn't get switched on or off by anything that any man does. It's commanded to shine. It is ordered to burn brightly, so brightly that it can't be denied. And where was it commanded to shine? Watch this. It's commanded to shine in Paul's heart. It's not from the outside, it's from the inside. In his deepest recesses. It illuminates Paul's sins. It illuminates the darkness that is in Paul's heart. And it washes it away. It brings Paul to repentance. It drives him on his knees. Stands as he sits before the prophet. Confesses his sins. And confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It brings Paul into the light. And it will do the same thing for us. Well, Why? Why would it do it for Paul? Why, why would this happen to us? Listen, it happens to us, it happens to Paul, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Did you hear that? It, gives, it happens to us to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It happens to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It doesn't happen to make us better people. It doesn't happen to set us free. It doesn't happen to give us a new identity. Those things happen to us, but that's not why this, this occurs in us. It's not to make us happy. It's not to make us richer. It's not to make us wiser. You know what? It's not even to make us healthier. Paul is the antithesis of that. The older Paul got, the deeper he got into ministry, the more his body was broken. None of those things are the reason that we are saved. We are saved to be messengers of light. We're saved to show that light to everyone that we meet. Paul was saved to show that light to everyone that he meets. He, we were saved to be an apostle, a messenger of God, a minister to the glory of God. And where does that light shine its brightest? Not in the things we do. Not in the face of Moses. We already saw that. That was covered up. But in the face of Jesus Christ, God's only Son, 
who died on a cross to pay for our sins, to pay for those that He shines His light on. Hmm. So Paul's ministry is revealed in three steps here. He commends himself to the conscience of others. And we had some clarity on that. His ministry is based on the accurate proclamation of God's Word and a manner of living that practices the Word that he preaches. Paul's a a hearer of the Word and a doer of the Word. And for that, he, he feels he can be trusted. Step number two, Paul characterized the spiritual condition of the lost. They're blinded by Satan. But, but only because they've allowed themselves to be blinded. Only because they've placed themselves above God, above the people around them. Their own sin blinds them. Satan just uses it to keep them there. Satan's not the cause of their sin. They're responsible for it. But if God reveals his light to them, they can be free. Step number three, Paul conveys the the detailed nature of his ministry. And what we find out there is Paul's ministry is a ministry of light, a light that God shines in in order to illuminate the the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, lead his children down their path of service. Well, that's great for Paul, isn't it? What about us? What does this mean to us? Listen carefully. All God's children are equal. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross. There's no Jew, no Gentile, no man, no woman. We're all equal. You know what that means? Paul's not special. I know he's Paul. He's got his work all over the New Testament. Paul's not special. Yes, indeed, Paul has some unique gifts. But he's not special because i got to tell you something. Each one of us is uniquely gifted as well. Each one of us is uniquely equipped to serve the body of Christ, just as Paul was, and to be messengers of his light. Each one of us is just as unique as Paul was. Paul was committed to doing everything he did for the glory of Christ, always pointing towards him. So that calling, if we understand that, and we understand that we're as equal, and we understand that that we all have a part in this, that calling falls to each of us as well. That becomes our calling. You know, we'll all have different ways that we'll carry that out. We'll all have different things that we'll do, but we all have the same calling to point towards Jesus Christ. And what that means is that Paul's three steps are our three steps. We, we have the same process. We have the same ministry going on. We are called to lead holy lives. We are called to declare an accurate word. We're called to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Why? Well, because we were once blind. We were once those people that couldn't see. When God shone his light upon us, He made us see. So we have that same gift of mercy that Paul has. And now, like Paul, we are all ministers of light, a ministry that we received by the mercy of God. 
We are ministers of a light that shines with the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's minister that light together. We have seen the path. We saw it down there at Stories in the Park. We see it in love to be me. We see it in compassion in action and service in action. And every time we go through those doors and out in the community, we become ministers of light. That's what you're being equipped with right now. What are you going to do with the ministry that God has given you? We're called to be out there sharing the gospel in any manner that we can. We're going to do it collectively. We're going to do it individually. i got to tell you something. When we do it collectively, the results are awesome. If you could be under that, that uh, pavilion uh, last week and listening to the discussions that were going on, the prayers that were being li- lifted up, and the truth that was being shared, it was absolutely incredible. And everything that went into that project last week allowed that to happen. All the cupcakes, all of the water, all of the carrying the equipment down there, all of the encouragement, all of the, the, the organization, all of the prayer that was lifted up, and yes, all of your tithes as well, allow us to go out and do that as a church. What a tremendous impact we can have on this community when we move as one. Amen? Doesn't have to be down at Eva Walker Park, brothers and sisters. It can be in our homes, it can be in our neighborhoods, it can be in our school, in the place we work, the place we shop. It can be everywhere we go. So let's be those ministers of light. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are the light. We thank you and praise you, Father, that the light dwells in us, Father, and all we have to do is let it shine. We pray, Father, that by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, you would guide us and direct us, Father. Help us to lead those holy lives. We, we can't do it on our own. We can't make it happen, but with your help, we can, Father. Help us to, to preach that accurate word, Father. Again, we can't do it on our own. We need your help, but with the presence and the power of your Spirit, we can make this happen, Father. Thank you for making us servants. In Jesus' name, amen.